Welcome to Time Titans, the podcast that helps professionals navigate the intricate dance between the modern workplace and personal well-being. We're your hosts, Crystal Silden Taswell, Leah Katz, and Sarah Beltran Ponce, and we're thrilled to be your guide on this transformative journey. Today on Time Titans, we have Dr. Bill Hall. He's a professor of radiation oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, someone who I've worked with directly as a trainee and serves as an excellent teacher, but also manages a pretty kind of wide research portfolio as well as a family. And so we're happy to have him here speaking with us today. Would you mind going ahead and just talking about how you got into medicine and radiation oncology specifically? Oh, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. I think it's really cool that you all are doing this and um, I'm really happy to participate. So I went into medical school with a sort of robust enthusiasm to go into surgery. And I always uh, thought I was going to become a surgeon. I mean, initially when I went to med school, it's sort of a funny story. I, I was never going to be a doctor. I studied biomedical engineering as an undergraduate. And then I worked for a startup company in Andover, Massachusetts, that was ultimately acquired by Microsoft. And I was a biomedical engineer there for a very short period of time. And I really, really didn't like it. And I was like, okay, I need to think about another career trajectory. And I always loved the show ER. You all may be too young to remember that, but it was, you you all know that show, you're smiling. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That was a popular show when I was a kid and I used to watch it on Thursday nights and I absolutely loved it. And I remember wanting to know passionately like what they were talking about and understanding all the lingo of of the emergency medicine delivery on that show. And I remember thinking, gosh, it'd be really cool to go to medical school so I could understand all that. But (laughs) I never planned on going to medical school, but I just kind of thought that would be a good transition. I also really liked being a student. And then I had read a book uh, the summer before I started med school about pediatric cardiovascular surgery that I thought was really, really inspiring. So I kind of went into med school with that mindset. I was president of the surgical interest group, and I was like really, really into surgery. And then I started doing my third year rotations, and I realized how much I despised being in the operating room. I There's many, many things I didn't like about it. And I found myself constantly like trying to avoid going into the operating room as a medical student. And instead, I wanted to just look at medical images. I loved medical images. I'd be focusing on looking at different MRI sequences and PET sequences and CTs. And, you know, this is something that I was really, really passionate about. And I had this sort of realization during my surgery rotation as a third year that there was just no way I was going to spend my career as a surgeon just because I thought it sounded really cool. I just figured that was going to be a huge mistake. And I had always known about radiation oncology because I did my senior thesis as a, a biomedical engineering student on the concepts of stereotactic positioning. So in the process of writing that, I learned all about the gamma knife, which is it's so fascinating from an engineering standpoint, how you localize an object in three-dimensional space And then you translate that data to a software package to direct something with millimeter accuracy. That whole process is like very, very engineering intensive. And I wrote a lot about that as a senior biomedical engineering student. And I, in the process of doing that, discovered the gamma knife. And I thought it was like the coolest thing I had ever heard of. The fact that you could do these really successful types of surgeries, quote, I sort of air quotes there with surgeries but minimally invasive procedures that controlled something like a brain metastasis without even cutting through the patient's skull. I was constantly fascinated by that, but I had this impression in my mind 
that those procedures were done by surgeons. I didn't realize that there was a whole specialty uh, devoted to doing that, which is obviously what we do as radiation oncologists. So the moment I found out about radiation oncology, sort of as the third year of medical school began, I immediately became enamored with it. And yeah, the rest was history. I just dove head into radiation oncology. It was sort of a perfect fit for me. And that was really what what brought me into our specialty and brought me into med school. Who knew that ER would play a role in your joining the field and all the contributions are are thanked by a TV show, perhaps? (laughs) Not about all of them, but certainly that was my inspiration to go into medicine. There's no question about it. Which is which is hilarious. And as you kind of walk through this path, then what kind of drew you specific to the field after you had learned, you know, it wasn't just gamma knife, that there was this wide array of things that were being done from a radiation standpoint? Yeah, I was like, and I still am mesmerized by the powers of radiation. I mean, I was completely captivated by it. I remember like meeting with the first radiation oncologist as a third year. And I had this list of questions of things that I was like truly captivated by, like how do you bend and sculpt radiation in three dimensions? That to me was like as an engineer and as a scientist and as, you know, as a medical student, I couldn't fathom how we could bend radiation and shapes to to hit tumors and avoid normal organs. I had so many questions about how patients were imaged and how they were set up and how treatment was delivered. And I wanted to watch treatments and understand exactly how these patients were being reproducibly aligned each day. And so from day one, and I continue this 10 years into faculty as a radiation oncologist, from day one, I was just wildly inspired and mesmerized by the powers of radiation to palliate and cure. And I still sort of have that kind of fascination and inspiration today. And it really drove me and continues to drive me toward toward focusing on and understanding our specialty and modality at a greater depth. And I know, I mean, certainly you talk about having questions from the get-go, and that's something you've always inspired us as residents to always ask questions for things. And you have such a profound research profile with all of the questions that you're looking to solve as well. How do you balance those desires to have innovation with clinical practice and family and all of the tasks that come each day? Yeah. So that's such a good question. I think what the core of this podcast is focused on, which is awesome. It, it is really, so the first thing to identify is it's really, really hard. And I really believe in this model of, you know, the the Toyota vision of sort of Kaizen continuous improvement of constantly iterating on how am I accomplishing that? How am I on a day-to-day basis working really efficiently, really intentionally and structuring my time in a way that enables me to to achieve what I want to achieve and answer these questions and balance a complex research and clinical responsibilities. So here, here's how I've done it. And I have no, no uh, real confidence that I've done it perfectly, but I can just tell you how I've done it. So when I first started as a faculty member, I didn't really study at all time management and the concepts of deep work and time blocking and productivity and, and accomplishing things. I really didn't study that formally. I just sort of tried to get everything done. And I then took this, there's a course here for early faculty members that's run through the CTSI. That's like a research strategy type course. And you present your research ideas to faculty members and you work on things like grant funding and 
you know, early career development stuff. And it was a wonderful course that MCW offered for junior faculty members one day a week for, I think we did it for like two years or something like that. It was great. And we had a guest lecturer at that course that introduced these concepts of studying productivity and things like Pomodoro timers and time management and time blocking and and, you know, the the concepts that Cal Newport and a lot of other productivity writers have put forth. But that was super inspiring to me. And I was like, okay, there's the science behind this and I can study how I sort of do these things. So from that point forward, I started applying some of the basic principles that Cal Newport has outlined. First of all, I read all of his books after that lecture. I started with So Good They Can't Ignore You. And then I went into deep work and I then I did A World Without Email and deep work of all the publications that he's put out was by far the most impactful on how I structure my time. And I think it really, it, you know, it, it really gets into the importance of, we can talk more in more detail about my day to day and how I do things, but it gets into the importance of time blocking, scheduling, realistically anticipating what you can do and partitioning your time very, very intentionally into exactly what you're going to be doing when. So broadly speaking, I have very distinct clinical time and people that work with me know that when I'm in clinic, I'm all in clinic. I'm very rarely doing, honestly, very rarely responding to email, very rarely doing research related activities, unless it's like protocol accrual or screening for some of my active protocols. You know, I'm, I'm really trying to get my notes signed and written as quickly as possible. And I try to be 100% present in that moment, caring for patients and in clinic. And then when I'm on my research time, I'm try, I try to be 100% in research. So today is a research day for me. Occasionally, I'll do things like this that I enjoy doing, but I most of the time am developing grants, writing papers, submitting papers, and trying to hit those sorts of deadlines. So broadly speaking, it's about, I think, partitioning my time into those very d- intentional activities. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And I, I love that you're a fan of Tommy Ford. I, I happen to love him. I think his podcast is great. He's a little over like, it, people complain that his podcast is dry, but I think it's like just chock full of information. One like thing, just to get super granular on like when you're 100% in clinic and you're signing your notes in clinic, what about all the other stuff that comes as a product of clinic? All the referrings you have to reach out to, volumes from your Sims, yep. um, just like, where does that get pushed to for you? Because I feel like for a lot of radonks, myself also included in this, like that stuff gets pushed my academic day and it yeah. takes away at my deep work time. Yep. Yeah. The best thing that you can possibly do is be ultra strict with yourself. And especially in the first three, four years of your career, your academic time is truly academic. Okay. So it's not time for contouring. It's not time for signing notes. It's not time for calling patients back unless of course, something's emergent. If, if a patient emergently calls you and they paid you, of course, that takes precedent over everything. In my practice, clinical work takes precedent over research hundred percent of the time. But the first few years of my career, my, I only had one academic day. Now I have a lot more because I have a ton of grant funding to support that. But in the first three years, three to four years of my career, I had one academic day, like most academic radiation oncologists do. And I only did academics on my academic day. And what that means, there is a ton of data on this. Most of it comes out of Japan and Asia, but there's actually a huge amount of data on this. And Harvard Business Review has written a lot about this. You will 
get the work done in the time that you allocate to do it. Okay. So if you say, I'm going to spend all weekend contouring a prostate, you can spend all weekend contouring a prostate. You know what I mean? But if you tell yourself, I'm going to get these contours done in the next 45 minutes or one hour, I mean, not uniformly, but a lot of times you will work quickly and more efficiently to get that task done in that time. So if you explicitly do not allow yourself on an academic day to do clinical work, you're you're realistically going to get a lot more of your clinical work done on clinical days. So the way that I've done it is my clinic usually finishes between you know, 3.30 and 4. Um, Sarah always jokes, like, I like to finish my clinic strong, meaning, like, I feel like I always have a really complicated consult at, like, 3.30. <laughs> but and it sometimes goes later than 4 or 4.30. But I usually have a window either at the very beginning of the day, like, on a clinic day, my first patient may not be roomed until 8 or 8.30. And I'll usually have a window in the beginning of my clinic day or a window at the end of my clinic day that... I will do contouring because I usually do contouring while I'm physically here because it's just a lot faster in terms of internet bandwidth speed to get it done here. And I find it's a lot more efficient and I'll do my contouring while I'm here. Now, admittedly, I treat a lot of GU and GU contouring is probably some of the easiest contouring that we do. It's getting a little bit more complicated with dominant prosthetic lesion boosting and you know, that sort yeah. of thing. But but for the most part, prostate contouring is pretty, pretty easy. So it doesn't take a super long time. It's not like I'm a head and neck attending. So this may or may not work depending on an individual's clinical volumes and practice. But I can usually get most of my contours done either before or after clinic. I do a lot of pancreatic treatments as well. And those contours are a little bit more complicated. Most of the time I have a resident with me. So that obviously helps tremendously. They'll usually do my contours and then I'm largely just reviewing them and tweaking them. But if I don't have a resident with me, which is three to four months of the year, then I just do those those volumes either before or after clinic. Or sometimes in the middle of the day, if I have a lull, I'll, I'll do some volumes there as well. And a lot of times we can talk about like very granular day-to-day scheduling. I listened to some of your, your first podcasts and I know you guys get into that a little bit, like morning schedule and time at home and that sort of thing. But a lot of times I do do a lot of note signing at night. Like after my kids go to bed, I'll sign notes, which I, I don't mind doing that. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I mean, I think one thing I'd like to hear in what you're saying that I think is a skill and correct me if I'm wrong is for some of us like on our academic day, you have to just discipline yourself to do your act like your academic work and get uncomfortable, be okay with the discomfort of having some stuff that's not done yet. Like, like volumes, like if a patient's starting in a week and your academic, and then you saw them on a Monday and your academic day is Tuesday, it's uncomfortable to not have those volumes done come Wednesday morning. But I think what you're saying is like to be productive, you kind of have to just discipline yourself that you're going to stick to your research on your academic day, which I think is a really good skill for us to learn and what a lot of us don't do. And you, you can know, you can mitigate. I know exactly what you're saying, especially as a junior faculty. You want to be meeting expectations, yeah. right? You want to you don't yeah. want symmetrists to be like, oh, so and so is not getting their volumes done. And you can mitigate that discomfort really, really well by clear communication. So you could email yeah. your symmetrist and say, hey, you know, I know I have the sim. The patient starts on Monday. I'm planning on having the contours to you by this day and time. And you can you know, you can look ahead at your schedule and block a time and say, okay, I look like I have a lull before my clinic starts on Wednesday, I'm going to do my prostate contours, then put it on your calendar, block it, and then communicate that in advance to your dosimetrist. And this this theoretically, say you're doing this on Monday, 
and say, I'm going to have these contours for you ideally between nine and 11 on Wednesday morning. Does that sound okay for you? And then usually they'll communicate back and say, yeah, that sounds great. Or if it doesn't work for them, you'll know, and then you've got to readjust that approach. But that will offset that anxiety of like, oh, my work isn't done. Because then you say, all right, I've clearly communicated when I'm going to have this done. It's been okayed by my colleague. I've shown them respect for their time. And then you feel free. You feel like, all right, I can do my all my academic work on Tuesday and get that paper written or submitted. Yeah, I think this is such a huge skill and can kind of make or break your first five years out, out of residency. You know what I mean? Because like a lot of us do rely on our academic day to catch up. Mm-hmm. When it's really not what it's meant for. <laughs> what I usually say is like, as a yeah. resident, you most residents don't have a dedicated academic day. At least, I, I mean, th- that might have changed. But when I was a resident, we definitely did not have a dedicated academic day. And you're not used to having a dedicated academic day. So in terms of clinical productivity, you still got your notes done, your contours done as a resident. So if you shift that mindset to being an attending and say, okay, now I'm going to use my dedicated academic day for academic productivity, I think it can work. It can work very, very well. And as you talk about residents, I obviously work with you closely in clinic, but how do you best incorporate residents into your workflow so that you stay productive, you're still educating and getting things done, but you find that appropriate balance? Yeah, I mean, I find that kind of hard, to be honest with you. I try to use every opportunity I can to teach and go through, like, do as much as I can during the clinical day to try and get teaching in as well. And then we usually on my service will do a dedicated sort of academic teaching session on Friday afternoons between like four and five. I always work a full day. I mean, a lot of people leave at like, you know, a little bit early on Fridays or something. I'm pretty much always here from like 7.30 till five o'clock. And that's Monday through Friday. And I think we could talk about this later in the podcast, but there isn't a lot of, I I really like to do that. And it's just my style. I like to be here for long days. So I I usually try to work in a dedicated teaching session Friday afternoons with resident if I can. And then I try to take every opportunity to teach the resident to the best of my abilities and scaling to the resident's number one, the resident's interest in in learning, because I know that sounds weird, but there's a spectrum of interests in terms of residents that want to really learn. Some residents are very interested in just achieving their benchmarks at a minimal level, which is fine. I mean, I'm not not judging anyone for doing that. But some of them are like, I want to get my contours done. I want to get out. I want to get my note done to a level of proficiency that is deemed adequate and then leave. That's totally fine. Other residents are like, no, Dr. Hall, I want to dive deep with you into phase two trial design. I want to go over RNA sequencing data. I want to understand what you're working on, you know, at the cooperative group level. I want to go in really detail into how you did this project or how you designed this trial. So I try to meet the resident where they are in terms of their interests as well, which that will require more or less time depending on the specific resident. Yeah. And I know we alluded to it a little bit when you were talking about notes after your kids go to bed. How do you find the balance between really checking out and spending time with family Yeah, versus doing some work from home when it's necessary and kind of so that really challenging yeah. kind of balance in and of itself? Yeah, I. this is such a great question and something that I can't emphasize enough to parents who are radiation oncologists or even just people that have family that don't go home to like it like themselves or you know in, in like an empty apartment or something i mean if 
in my world, the most important thing is the well-being and and kind of happiness of my family. You know what I'm saying? If if they're not like thriving and doing well and happy and and enjoying and living life the way they want to do it, my life kind of crumbles. You know what I mean? And I I feel like that's really really important. And I've told this to a lot of people. Like if if you're thinking about a job or you're thinking about a career change or you're you're trying to think about a new opportunity or something, it's really important in my opinion to engage your family on that decision because if your family's unhappy or your family doesn't want to do it, then it's it's hard to really thrive in it in your career. Even if you really want to do it, you're not going to be super successful if your family's miserable. So early portion of my career, I think I was really bad at this. I used to get email notifications on my phone. I would always have my phone with me. My phone would be dinging when I get home. I'd be distracted. It's impossible to ignore an email. And then you know, sometimes you'll get an email and it like emotionally wrecks you, right? Like you put in a huge grant, you get an email and it's, it's triaged or they don't discuss it or they trash it. Or you put in a huge paper that you think is going to get accepted to a great journal, you get the email and it's rejected and it's emotionally devastating. So, you know, for the first few years of my career, I remember I was getting email notifications on my phone and it was like, I found it like, I felt like I needed to do that to be responsive, which I don't think you do. And we can talk about that. But I found it to be really hard with my balancing family. So actually, Cal Newport was where I got this this strategy, which is like this shutdown time. And basically, when I leave, unless I'm on call and and I carry a pager, you know, and of course, I have to be responsive to that. But when I leave work, I basically shut down. And when I get home, I try and I'd be so interested to see what my wife would say about this to see if she agrees with this, <laughs> but I try to do this. I try to go to, you know, my I like change out of my work clothes and I leave my phone like far away from where I am. And I put it on silent. Of course I don't do this on call, but I put it on silent. I put it far away from where I am. And then I just spend time with my kids. So I usually try to get home depending on the day between like I'd say five and 6.30. The latest I probably get home is six, around six to 6.30. And when I am home, I am 100% home. So that means I am actively talking to my wife about her day. I'm help at very actively helping my kids with homework. I am eating dinner uninterrupted. I am like engaging with my kids as much as possible. And I am actively doing that until my kids are asleep. So like I'm putting them to bed, I'm reading them books. My kids just for reference are 11, eight and six. So, you know, the 11 year old is getting a little bit more independent, but this eight and six year old is still a very active bedtime routine. And so I'm actively reading the books, I'm actively engaging with them and I'm trying not to do anything else besides that. That doesn't always work, especially if I've got a big deadline or if I'm on call, but I try to do that like 80% of the time. And then when they're in bed, then I go back to sort of oftentimes signing notes or working on a grant or like get, getting other things done. So yeah. I love the idea of having a shutdown period as a new attending. I've literally been in attending for two weeks, um, a new attending, a new mom. It's, I know it's so important to just have that period of time where you can actually spend with your family, but how do you make time for yourself in your schedule mm-hmm. too? Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good question. I think a lot of that comes in on the early mornings, which we can talk about morning routine. I think that's really valuable. But early mornings, I have personal time. And then honestly, self-time, like 
I have the luxury of being in an office, a quiet office with my own time all day. Like I just came back from, you know, a week vacation with my family, which I absolutely love, but it is so stressful as you all know much better than I do. It is so stressful, like actively caring for kids when like none of your time is your own. And I feel like when, you know, your kids constantly needing things. They they want a snack. They're cold. They they're hungry. They want to go to a store or whatever. I feel like when we're in our day to day, especially on academic time, like it's very relaxing. And it definitely, for me at least, this may not be for everybody. For me at least, though, it definitely checks that box of like some self time. The other thing is weekends. I try to do very very little work on the weekends, and I definitely try and give my wife a lot of time on the weekends to do what she wants to do. And again, I don't know which, how she'd be reacting to this, but but I think I do. And I usually am very intentional about saying, what do you have to do this weekend? Do you have to, you know, do you want to play tennis? Or do you have to, you know, go get something done that you need to do or whatever she enjoys doing? But I also have self-time on the weekends that my wife definitely gives from gives to me. So I do get some of that done on the weekends as well, where I play in a tennis league and I play in a soccer league as well. And then early mornings, I work out in the morning. I get up early and, and work out at least three days a week, which I find is very relaxing self-time. And I watch I watch the news usually like like Bloomberg or CNN or something like that. And um, I find that very relaxing. So that self-time is usually accomplished during those, during those uh, activities. Yeah, that's great. Two follow-up questions for you. So like in terms of your phone and everything, like I think the shutdown time is amazing. Like and I, I definitely need to institute that. I'm actually going off of maternity leave this coming Monday, so this conversation could not be any more timely for me. I have, I just had my first baby. So, but in terms of like, thank you. In terms of your phone during the day, mm-hmm. um, let's say you're in the middle of clinic and you get a text message from a good friend checking in. Are you responding? To, I know no. this is a nerdy question, but I'm so yeah, into no. this stuff. Like, are you responding? At that moment, or do you intentionally like block time to respond to your text messages? Same thing with email, same thing with any other incoming thing that's not emergent. Yeah, I I hate text messages in general. I think they're a really bad way to communicate. And I, my friends all know that. And, you know, people that call me know that I want to be called. You know what I'm saying? And I think that we've lost so much communication with texting and emailing that used to be done at verbal communication, which I think is so much more it's a much more effective communication message method. So usually I'll say, just call me, you know what I mean? I usually don't respond to things like that. Like I don't get a lot of texts from friends in the day. It's interesting. I don't know why that is, but mo- <laughs> a lot of my friends are doctors. <laughs> so, I mean, most of my friends are doctors actually, mm-hmm. that might be why, or they're very busy professionals. Yeah. So I think most of the time they're working most of the texts I get from them are random things like friend of mine. I'm really into cars and a lot of my friends are really into cars. So friends of mine will text me like, oh, this new car came out. You know, like, what do you think of this? Or, oh, did you see this announcement right. from whatever? And I usually don't respond to that. You know, I might b- glance at it briefly, but I'm usually like trying to do 100% in clinic. I don't really block time for that either. And I usually will use like car time to call people. So that's a really common time that I call people is in my car. I don't think I'm ever in my car, not on the phone. Or, you know, weekend time, you know what I mean? But, you know, the other thing that's that we don't talk about enough that I think is really, really important to sort of intentionally talk about is how emotionally devastating our jobs can be. And I find this really valuable for the shutdown period 
because sometimes it's really, really hard to shut down, especially as a junior faculty, like, especially if you think if you're worried that you made a mistake. And that is honestly, like, we don't talk about this as doctors, how and no, really, it's only us that understand this, like, it's very hard for anyone that's not a practicing physician to understand this, that you are the ultimate responsible agent for this individual's life and well-being. And that responsibility is profound. You know what I mean? It's it's not like being a parent, but it's, I mean, being a parent is way, way, way different, but it's like you're responsible for someone else's life. You know what I mean? And if you make a mistake, which we all do, we totally make mistakes, it can be really hard to like, quote unquote, shut down. You know, it's not like Cal Newport, who's a software developer, right? And he's like, okay, I'm going to turn off my computer and I'm not developing software. I mean, it's different. It's a, a different career, you know? So I found that sometimes really, really hard. And I'd come home and my wife would be like, I've been, my wife and I have been together since we were 20. So she's seen me through the whole trajectory of like, before I even took the MCAT. But she'd be like, okay, I can tell like something, something is off. You know what I mean? Like you clearly like, and I would usually know, and I'd come home and tell her, we very rarely talk about work, but I'd come home and tell her like, God, you know, I had this terrible day, like something really bad happened. I made a mistake or I had this difficult interaction or I had this patient that was really challenging. And she would often be like, okay, do something different for your, sh for, she doesn't use the word shutdown, but she'd be like, for me, it's often go for a run. Like I'm a, I'm a big runner. And so she'd be like, you know, go for a run or take 30 minutes to just like do a more comprehensive shutdown. And yeah. I think that we have to recognize that as practicing physicians that the same magnitude of shutdown may, may not always be adequate. You know what I'm saying? And if you've had a really, really bad day, it might be needed for you to do a more comprehensive disconnect from your day before you get into home time than you usually would. Like that can involve a lot of things. For me, it's always going for a run, but for other people, it could be just doing something that you really, really, really enjoy that really takes your mind off of work for 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is. But just making sure that your spouse or partner, you know, understands or, you know, whoever your family is understands that you just need a little bit more time because you just had a really emotionally devastating day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's not always possible, right? Like some people are coming home and their spouse might not be there or like. Yeah. Oh, know, absolutely. Yeah. And if, if know, it's possible. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I, it's a lot of times it's not possible for me either. Like you got to just do it. You got to pick your kids up at a certain time. And but when you can do it, it can be helpful to try. Yeah. But I think just having the awareness, like you're saying that like you had a difficult day can help you, even if you don't have the time to decompress, just like being more aware of the fact that you did experience something emotionally, almost maybe like traumatic during the day mm -hmm. is a, I think that now that self-knowledge in it of itself can be helpful. Like as you get home. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly so important to have outlets too. And it sounds like, you know, spending time with family and exercise are huge outlets for you. Do you ever feel like there's other ways that you need to de-stress or debrief kind of challenging days or a process for that? Or does that seem to really be your main kind of strategy? My main strategy is exercise. I mean, I'm like people that know me, I'm, I'm, I find exercise, honestly, we don't, I don't think we as doctors or in general talk about the value of exercise. I mean, it is so, in my view, it is so therapeutic. I mean, it, it like solves so many issues for me. I mean, if I'm having a bad day and I can do like an intense, I do, I have like a rowing machine. So I do these workouts on the rowing machine or I do like a calisthenics workout or I go for a run that I would say 
doesn't uniformly solve things, but it makes it a heck of a lot better. You know what I mean? And I feel way, way, way better. The biggest outlets, and again, I'm going into like 15, 20 years here of like what, you know, stressful situations, whether you do bad on a med school exam or you don't get an interview that you want for residency or whatever. The things that I avoid in terms of ways of dealing with that or disconnecting are I never consume alcohol as a stress reliever. And I think that that's like a very, I do, I really am into wine. I don't drink a lot, but I like a glass of wine on a Friday evening. And I have seen alcohol become a stress reliever for peers and friends. And I find that always is a universally negative thing. If you, I only turn to alcohol in celebratory situations. You know what I'm saying? Like if if I did great on an exam or I'm it's a Friday afternoon and I got a huge paper accepted or I got promoted, you know, I'll have like a glass of wine with friends and celebrate and it's like a fun thing. I never, ever, ever will have a glass of wine or have a alcohol like people talk about this and i think it's helpful just just discuss it but i'll never have a a drink if i had a bad day you know i won't ever be like oh let me have a glass of whatever because i got this paper rejected i uniformly have found that to be a pathway to a destructive behavior so i don't really have other ways besides like exercise and spending time with family of really decompressing or or offsetting a difficult day, but I have ways that I don't do it. And I think the biggest one is I, is I don't ever, I won't ever have like a a drink if I had a bad day (laughs) or I actually have a very intentional process in my life where I don't, I don't usually have any alcohol if I'm working the next day. So I just like separate those two. But anyway, that's a, maybe a separate conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's really good advice. Actually, like, I think a lot of people drink, like, and I've definitely been guilty of it, like having a glass of wine to de-stress. But I think another option is meditation. I have not been able to establish a real meditation practice, but I think, I think the wine is just so you can just like get away from your thoughts that just don't Mm -hmm. stop, you know, and I think meditation can probably achieve the same thing and is definitely much healthier. Totally. I've never meditated, but people that I know that I admire that I use for inspiration talk about meditation a lot and I've never tried it, but it's something that I'd love to get more into. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've read all the books about meditation. I just haven't done it. (laughs) It's hard to find the time, which is ironic when you're talking about like de-stressing and finding time for things. I always find that that's the biggest barrier to meditation is that unplugging my brain for a set amount of time is just really hard. And I know you talked about exercise often being something you do before work, kind of by yourself as, as alone time. What else do you do in preparation for your day? So your morning routine, how... You know, you get the things done you need to so that you have a productive day from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. By far. And I say this because I know it's the best way to do it, but I don't always do it. I really think that the the next day starts the night before. And if you listen to anyone that that focuses on productivity, like Ryan Serhant is another person that I kind of follow. He talks a lot about this. He's a real estate agent in New York, a little bit younger than me, but but had, you know, he grew up in the similar area that I did. And like, I feel like I've always followed him over the course of his TV TV career, but he now talks a lot about productivity and he's accomplished like inconceivable things. And he is a big proponent of you always start the next day, the night before. So that means like you review your schedule the night before you very, very clearly like lay, I I usually will like put out what I'm going to wear the night before. Like I always put out my workout clothes right? Like I make sure I have socks and shirt and everything like ready to go for the morning. And I find that helps a lot. 
I make sure that I have like my pager and my ID and my keys and everything organized just so that the morning can go more clearly. But I usually start the night before. I usually block off exactly what I need to accomplish. So I write down like today I have like this to-do list. It's a paper to-do list that I write down that I wrote down yesterday of exactly what I needed to get done today. And I usually just try to clearly outline what exactly I'm going to do the next day. And I look at it in the context of my schedule and and try to figure out how I'm going to get all of it done. Do you find that you block time further in advance or do you really just prep the night before for that day? I usually prep the night before and I do try and block time to the best of my abilities. What I find difficult is sometimes I block time and then I don't respect those time blocks all the time, which I find is a constant struggle that I have. Like I had blocked, for example, a couple hours this morning to we're submitting an R1 in October that I need to finish a few parts of. And I didn't do it. You know, I, I I just did a longer workout than I anticipated and I just didn't get it done. So that's a challenge that I'm working on. But I do try to block time as best I can in general in advance, meaning like broad categories, like uh, and my assistant helps me with this, but I'll be like, no meetings during this time, actively working on this, you know, general area. But then the granularity of that time, I usually will do like day of or maybe the night before, but usually it's day of. And ensuring that you're productive. I know you've always given me the advice of having about five projects going on at a time. So they're all at different stages. How do you decide then what to focus on and when to say no to things and how yeah. to really like find what fits in your schedule without overwhelming it. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm the best person to ask on this, to be honest with you, because I have been continually told throughout the course of my career, like literally since I was a first year resident that I'm doing way too much and that I've got too much going on and that I need to stop doing so many things. So, but honestly it's worked well, it's worked. I think it's worked well for me. Like if you look at what I've done in the past 10 years, I'm like, okay, this has been okay. I mean, I, you never get everything done. You want to get done, but I feel like I've been okay. But the other thing that I'm very cognizant of right now, and I just listened to a a Harvard business review podcast on this when I was away on vacation, I was going for a run and I, I always listen to these podcasts and this one was very inspiring to me. I'm very cognizant of not trying to impose my goals on other people. So I, I just have been recently thinking about this. Like, I probably did tell you that, like, oh, you need to have five projects going at all the time. And I remember I was I was recently a visiting professor at MD Anderson in uh, in June, and I met with their residents, and the residents were like, they wanted to hear about time and how do I how do I accomplish what I do and how do I balance my time and workload. And I told them something. I don't. I hope it didn't like scare them, but I said I try to focus on the rule of three, which is I always have three things under review, so like uh, at least two or three papers or a grant and two papers, or I always want to have three things actively under review. Like right now I have three R01s under review and I have a paper under review. So I felt like if I could get those three things, but then when I heard this podcast, when I was on vacation, I was like, gosh, I need to be a little bit more careful of not trying to impose my over my sort of bizarre goals of overachievement on other people. Cause <laughs> other people may not want that. You know what I'm saying? They may be like, well, my goal is just to get my epic encounters closed. And that's totally fine. You know, I mean, like, I, that doesn't mean that I have to try to impose my goals on other people. It's just what I've done. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, I try to motivate myself by having things constantly in the queue, so to say, of like review or 
data being analyzed or trials accruing or, or what have you. That's just a personal choice. It doesn't mean that, that you have to do that, you know? I definitely yeah. think it's helpful to hear, you know, and, you know, have you as an inspiration as far as, you know, having three things under review, whether it fits for someone or not, it's definitely helpful to hear as you try to figure out how you want to be as an attending or what have you. But how do you handle like not getting something checked off your to-do list for that day? Yeah, that happens to me all the time. I usually just try, I don't, I wouldn't say I handle it anyway, specifically. I would say I usually just try to put it to the next day. Or the other thing I find very, very effective, which this is another Cal Newport thing is I try not, I use a program called Things, which I know, I think you guys talked to the last guest about how they sort of organize their to-do list, but there's a program called Things that I really, really, really like. And it, you, it's almost like a combination of a to-do list and a calendar. So you can actually assign to-do items to specific times, almost like they're an appointment. And you can estimate like, how long is this going to take? And then you can, rather than just having a running list of here's 10 things that I need to get done, you can make them like appointments. So I think what I do is usually if I don't get something done, I'll be like, all right, when am I going to do this realistically? And then I'll assign it to that time. I don't always do that because there's a lot of things that are just lingering in the background. Like, oh, I want to try to, like, I, this is going to sound crazy, but like, I want to write a book, right? I mean, like, I, I've, I've never written a book. I want to write, I have a very specific topic that I want to write a book about. And I don't know when I'm going to do that. I haven't assigned that to a time yet, but it's on my like to-do list as like a someday, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the more granular things you could assign to a time and that might be helpful. Like I'll do this tomorrow at nine or something. Do you find that having those kind of blocked is like how long they will take helps you to fill gaps? Like if you have 30 minutes, then you finished everything else in your list. Do you then go back to that things and pull something that should take a short amount of time? Yeah. Usually if I have a 30 minute window, I usually use that to do really quick tasks. Like, you know, things that are going to take five minutes or less where I really, really, really struggle to be honest with you is email. I don't have a good solution. I was hoping Cal's book, a world without email would solve this. It did not. (laughs) If Cal was sending this podcast, I I need a better strategy for email because he basically talked about like how bad email was in that book, but I didn't get a clear way of how to manage it. But email, I think is the hardest thing for me by far, but other little tasks, I usually just check them off quickly. If I have a quick window and I feel like that, that task list manager is works really well for that at least for me what do you use like yeah sorry i was saying talking about email the dreaded email it sounds like you don't maybe have a perfect system but what have you been working on to try to find a way to get through all the messages that come through the only thing i've been doing which i feel like i can do this now and this is not good advice i will tell you this right now this is not good for junior career or even probably i mean i i don't even know if it's good for my stage of career but I usually emulate my mentors and I have a series of mentors who I greatly admire that I meet with regularly, that I talk to constantly that advise me. And these are people that I really, really, really admire their career accomplishments. I admire their personal lives. I admire who they are as human beings. And I've carefully curated these people over the past, you know, 15 years. What I've noticed from my mentors is they, this is uniform across my mentor group. They don't respond that quickly to emails. Okay. <laughs> like they just flat out don't respond. And that is like all Agreed. my mentors that I really cherish do that. Okay. So this is not, again, not great advice. And may, people may perceive this as rude, 
but I have started doing that where like I literally do my very, very best. I truly do. But there are many emails that I don't get to in a timely fashion and people will send them to me and and I end up responding to them, you know, after they've re-forwarded them or something like that. Of course, you know, ABR emails on board certification and, you know, emails for grant deadlines and PubMed Central uploads that I have to do for NCI funded publications and cooperative group uh, progress reports and grant progress reports. There are certain emails that I can't, obviously can't do that. You know, I have to respond to those. But the casual emails of people being like, hey, like, what do you think of this or blah, blah, blah. I just take a really long time to respond to those or I don't respond. And that's probably not ideal, but I don't have another solution for that because I get on average, you know, I'm PI of two cooperative group studies. We get a lot of emails on that. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, grants and projects with students, so I get tons of emails on that. But I probably get 300 plus emails a day and I could literally spend all day responding to emails and I simply can't do it. Now, I don't, I don't have a good solution for it, but and I don't know how other people do it. But the mentors that I've seen do that often, they just don't respond in a, a, super quickly. They will respond eventually, but just not like in a in a five minute time frame. Agreed. Do you, um, when you get up in the morning, it sounds like you get up pretty early. Like when you work out, what time are you getting up? It depends on the day of the week. So, so I really tr- should be getting up at a more consistent time because that's one of the tenets of healthy sleep, which I've tried to focus on a lot more in the past few years because I used to stay up very, very late and get up very early. And I don't think that's healthy. I do think sleep is so profoundly important. And I think that sleep is going to become the smoking of our generation where what I mean by that is like, we don't realize how detrimental it is to your health. If you don't sleep regularly, I think in 50 years, we may discover that like not sleeping well is way more harmful to you. Just like they discovered smoking was really bad for you when they used to think it was not that bad. in you know, the forties or fifties or whatever, but I try to get up at a consistent time, but it definitely depends on the day of the week. Cause I'm not a morning person. I hate getting up early, but I do get up early to work out and so Mondays and Tuesdays, I have a tumor board at seven. So I usually get up, I try to get up at like 545. And I do like a quick but very, very intense workout from usually like 550 or six until like 615. And then I live really, really close to the medical center. So it's like a 10 minute drive at most from door to desk for me to get here. And then I'll, I'll do that shower, change, get dressed and come in to work and try to be at my desk by seven. That's Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. I don't have to be here until usually like eight, eight thirty, which is awesome. So I do like a really, really intense longer workout on Wednesday mornings where I usually go for a long run. If it's the summer when I was training for the marathon, I did a long run on Wednesday mornings, like a really long run, like usually 10 to 12 miles. Then I would, you know, do a weightlifting or whatever little calisthenics workout and then come in after that. If it's the winter, I do like an indoor workout, but I usually will do that for, I get like a really good workout in Wednesday mornings and I come in later, but I usually again, get up at like six, six fifteen maybe and start that process. And then Thursdays I have to be here at seven 30. So same thing. I usually get up six, six fifteen and do that shorter, intense workout. Fridays I have to be at pancreatic research meeting at six 30. I usually don't work out on Fridays. It's like my rest day. And then Saturday and Sundays, I do a super intense workout Saturday and Sunday mornings. But that's, um, and usually I get up a little bit later on Saturday and Sunday mornings, because typically my wife and I will go out on Friday or Saturday night. And sometimes we're out a little bit later and I'm trying to catch up on sleep a little bit. So it's maybe 7.30 on those days, seven or 7.30. Yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. I think, I mean, I think it's amazing that you prioritize exercise in the morning. I also 
I'm like very sacred about working out in the morning. It's like, I think it's changed my life as well. But one thing that I do that I think is super detrimental, and I wonder if you have any habits around it, is I find that I check my phone before I work out. So mm-hmm. I will sometimes ch- I check my work email before mm-hmm. I work out. And I think it can completely change the experience. So do you have any rules around your like morning I do the same thing. I, no, it's, it's such a good point. I collaborate with a lot of Europeans that we are running a bunch of big trials together. So they always yeah. email me, you know, it's six hours ahead, six, seven hours ahead for them. So I always get a lot of emails from, from those collaborators early in the morning. And yeah. I check my phone before I work out and it's a huge challenge. I wish I didn't do that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I usually do. But I usually, I used to get a lot more emotionally derailed by emails. Like if I didn't get a grant accepted or I got a paper, you know, rejected or something, I was devastated by it. Now, to yeah. be honest with you, I, <laughs> there's very, very few emails that I care that much about anymore. <laughs> that sounds That's crazy, amazing. Yeah. That will happen. I promise you over the yeah. course of your career, you'll be like emotionally blunted to the stuff. You're like, ah, whatever. So yeah. it might be better. I think if I were earlier in my career, I would probably try harder not to check my emails. Now I yeah. just make sure I didn't miss something major. And I'm like, oh, did I screw anything up big time that I need right. to right away? You know? Yeah. It's funny. I've been thinking about it a lot because I'm like, it can completely change. Like if you give yourself that 30 minutes to work out, that's amazing. But if you get like, an emotionally charged email, you'll like just mentally miss the work. You know what I mean? Like totally, I've, I've had totally. workouts before in the morning where I'm just not present there at all. You yeah. know what I mean? Because Absolutely. I'm like just totally like invested in that email. I got. So that's, that's my number I, I, one. I know that so well. When I go back to work on Monday is no phone before I get no, like no, no email. Before I get, yeah. What's that? But it's hard when your alarm is your phone because then I you're know. instinctively just like, exactly. oh, I have to turn this alarm off and I may as well just check all these other things. And then you Yeah, a lot of people say a lot of I've I read a lot about sleep because I'm just fascinated by how important it is now. A lot of sleep specialists will say like you should not sleep in the same room as your phone because it's such like an emotionally crazy thing. Like when you pick mm-hmm. up your phone, there's so many distractions. There's so many like ways that you can do things on it, whether it's checking Twitter or checking Instagram or checking your email or checking your text messages. So some people say you shouldn't even sleep within your in your uh, in your bedroom. I definitely don't do that. It's my alarm. It's right next to me. But I know a lot of people subscribe to that, that you shouldn't have it in your in your bedroom. Yeah, my husband guilty of it. (laughs) Yeah, my husband has struggled with sleep his whole life. and He no longer sleeps with his phone in our room. Does it work well for him? It's helped a lot. He also yeah. got an aura. He got an aura ring, which, if you're interested in sleep, you might want to check out. It um, is that it the like, light thing that wakes you up with like natural light or something? No, it's uh, that's that. I think is, there's a few of those on the market. One of them is like the hatch, which you can get for kids. You can also get them for adults. Um, but the aura ring is you. It's a wearable device. You wear it on your ring, your finger. Okay. Um, and it tracks heart rate, heart rate variability, but it also gives you a sleep score every oh, night. It's pretty accurate. It's helped him. Yeah. That's very, you know, I had one. Of, this is funny. I had one of those like really early in my career when I used to, I used to be like be the worst about sleep. Like I would stay up so late and I would get up so early and I never prioritized sleep. And it was terrible because I think it cognitively really hits you hard and like it, it really does impact your health. And I'm very different now. But I would say the first few years of my career, I was like a total night owl. I'd stay up routinely until like midnight, 12 30. And then I'd be getting up at like six routinely. That was not at all healthy. But I had one of those. I had a wearable once. It was made by, I think it was called like Withings or something like that. I got it for, or like some random gift. 
and it did a sleep tracking thing and I stopped wearing it because I was like so it, it kept warning yeah. me like, sleep is woefully inadequate like you're harming <laughs> yourself and I was like oh forget <laughs> you I was like I don't need that yeah <laughs> yeah it can but be counterproductive I should yeah. try that We'll see yeah. if you're you're better than woefully inadequate now that you prioritize your sleep more. And I know it kind of goes along the lines of a couple of things you've given, like advice of this is what you did at some point earlier in your career and how you've adapted it. Do you have like a top one or two things that you would give as pieces of advice for those who are early in their career trying to be really productive, yeah. but also find a balance? Yes. Number one globally is you have to enjoy the journey because like I spent way too much time stressing about stupid things that don't matter and you're going to look back and say god that was so stupid and i'm not that old i mean it's not like i'm you know 75 retiring so i'm sort of mid-career but i definitely regret getting too stressed out about things that honestly don't matter at all so that's the first thing is just like just enjoy the journey and keep things in perspective and life is too short to get really stressed out about someone tweeting about your paper or something not getting an oral or not getting a grant funded, it really doesn't matter that much. But at the same time, you want to be really productive and you want to work hard and you don't want to feel like you are selling yourself short. And so I think, again, Cal Newport advice that I live by that really resonated with me. This came from um, So Good They Can't Ignore You. It, one of his other books is that you, you have to identify rare and highly valuable skills and not enough people talk about that, but like, if you can focus on what are the rare and highly valuable skills for your particular career environment, that is a great thing to focus you. So for me, when I came into academics, I said, okay, rare and highly valuable skills, I, I identified two. One was being a principal investigator of a cooperative group trial. I looked at that and I was like, everyone that I know that is a PI of a cooperative group trial is really, really well known. They've got really great careers. They're respected. They're experts in a certain area. And so I looked at that and I said, it's rare and it's highly valuable. And so I sought out in the very early portion of my career to become extremely active in the cooperative groups and try to become a PI of a cooperative group trial. And that's a very, very challenging thing to do. But it's very, I think, really rewarding. And it's um, it was a rare and highly valuable skill that I strived for. And I was happy that I was able to accomplish that. The second one is securing lots of extramural grant funding. I looked at people that had lots of protected time, lots of time to reflect and do what they wanted to do and give lectures and got invited places and travel and do all these cool things with academics that I thought were that were, I, that were kind of what I wanted to do. And uniformly, they had extramural grants that were, you know, that were uh, pretty substantially funding their time and effort. So I, I try to focus on that as well. And I try to put in a lot of grants. And, and I think that that can be a helpful way to focus is figuring out, first of all, like, what are the rare and highly valuable skills? And then mentors are priceless. So talking to mentors all the time about like, where should I be focusing my time? What can I be doing better? And finding really good mentors that are going to advise you in the right way, I think is really, really helpful. But like the first thing I said, the last thing I would say is just enjoy the journey because you have to enjoy every day of, of life because it just goes by so fast and try to prioritize family above and ever, everything else. And, and if you, you know, prioritize time with your family and friends and kids and stuff, if you have kids, because it's just, um, it's totally priceless and it goes so fast. Yeah, Absolutely. 
I just have a global question for you. So you, you know, you've obviously thought about time management, all this stuff a lot um, and have like obviously very helpful things to say on it. But so many of our colleagues and so many of our the departments in which we work don't have not thought about these things. And if anything, when these, at least in my experience, sometimes not with my department, my department's been very supportive, but just like as a general gestalt of our field in medicine in general, when these things come up, it's sort of seen as very soft and not important. And that these things are just not, you know, meant for us because we're physicians. And I think maybe your background like has something to do with why you have found your way here and why it's helped you so much. But like, what, like, do you have any thoughts on why our field and like why people like just why we're all sort of a little bit blind to all this and think it just Mm -hmm. comes naturally to some people and not to others and don't realize that it's a skill and how we can improve that. Yeah, I think we have to talk about it a lot. And I think medicine, and it still should be this, in my opinion. I mean, first of all, time management and aggressively managing and blocking your time does not mean you're not working unbelievably hard. I mean, anyone that knows me is floored by the number of hours that I work per day. I work unbelievably hard, as do all of you, I'm sure. So the first thing that you have to separate is, and I see this a lot where people are like, oh, I'm going to prioritize my well-being and therefore I'm going to finish every day at 3:30. Like no, it does that's that's not what I refer to when I talk about time management. Right. I'm referring to very intentionally blocking your time so that you can accomplish your goals, but I'm still working like super 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 hard. So, I think articulating to your leadership and your management and whoever's kind of supervising you that you're going to work really, really hard. And actually, Sarah does a nice job of this. Like at the start of the rotation, she'll be like, I'm going to get my notes done, but they may get done after clinic hours. Are you good with that? And I was like, totally. Yeah, I'm very, very good with that, you know, but things get done and they're done well. And that's all that matters to me. And it doesn't mean that you're not working super hard. It just means that you're working very intentionally and at different times than maybe would have initially been expected of you. But I think so much of this is about communication and so much of this is about understanding what's expected of you and understanding how you can optimally meet those expectations, you know, and just talking with whoever is setting expectations for you about your goals and about how exactly you're going to accomplish the goals that they have set and expected for you is very, very valuable on a, that that's sort of on a personal level, on a global level in medicine, we're very, very, very self-sacrificing. I mean, physicians are unequivocally the most self-sacrificing people I know. And that comes from a multitude of things. There are very, very few careers where you literally give up all of your 20s, okay? If, If you followed sort of a traditional career path, right? You come out of undergrad and you're, you know, 21, 22, whatever, and you're literally giving up like 20 to 30 to do medical school and residency and you're not making any meaningful money you're going typically going into a tremendous amount of debt you're taking on an overwhelming amount of stress and anxiety and it's a very very self-sacrificing path okay very much more very 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 more so than any other professional career whether that's business whether that's law, I have a lot of friends that are MBAs, I have a lot of friends that are lawyers, you know, they don't do, and I would, I, I, they may disagree with this, but they make a lot of money earlier in their career. They do not have to work typically the hours for the pay that physicians have historically been expected to work. So I think we, 
in general are very, very self-sacrificing. And that tends to continue into later portions of your career. And I think part of the reason that we don't talk about this enough is because it's sort of expected of us that, oh, of course, you'll show up at 630 for tumor ward. And of course, you'll stay until nine if your patient has a cord compression, which it is. I mean, that's our duty as physicians is, you know, we always put our patients first and the well-being of patients comes, you know, comes before so much else. And this was, I think COVID was a great example of this. You know, we didn't even understand the virus. We didn't understand how it was transmitted well. We didn't know the late effects of it. We didn't know how harmful it was on kids. We didn't know a lot of things, yet we were expected to still come to work, still see patients, still expose ourselves to it, go home, you know, potentially expose our families to it. And everyone that I know did that full force, you know, but I think what we can try to strive to do is at least discuss it a little bit more that, you know, we have to be very careful and intentional about how we use our time and how we address things like, you know, mental health and burnout and physical wellness and how are you making time for exercise and how are you making time for sleep and how are you making time for family? It's not to say you're not going to work hard, but I think just more intentionally discussing it, like it's great that you guys are doing this sort of thing because, you know, it, it brings it to the forefront of a conversation. At least, we, you know, we're talking about it now, whereas many times we wouldn't have discussed it in the past. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I know that in speaking of time and, and being intentional, we're a little over our time today. And I just want to see if you had any other final thoughts or pieces of advice to give before we wrap up. No, I mean, I think that, you know, the only thing I would say is the one piece of advice I'd also say is just try and be, you know, try and be really, really cautious with social media. I think that I've seen a lot of people who I think are nice, great, talented people, you know, implode their careers on social media. And, you know, I, it's sad that that happens, but we have just have to be aware of it and just be conscious with it. And I think that, you know, especially our, you're, you're more like, you know, the younger generations, like it's easy to get emotional and then go on to social media, but I've, I've seen it be like very, very, very destructive for certain people and people end up perceiving things about them based on a tweet or based on their activity on social media. And I think that's something we have to be really careful about. I guess I want to say thanks for having me. Um, it's really nice that you all asked me to be on. I feel I'm very flattered and I'm happy that I was able to find time to do this. And it's cool that you guys are doing this. And and I think it's really exciting. And hopefully uh, the podcast will gain a lot of listenership and priority amongst people. So thank you for yeah, your time. Thank you. You've been someone yeah. that I look up to as a very efficient, high achieving person in my own training. So hearing your nitty gritty is really helpful. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Time Titans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and let's continue the journey to a more efficient, fulfilling and harmonious life. Remember to check out our online platforms for additional notes.